So another long-form podcast from the Armstrong and Getty Show. If you don't know who we are, Jack Armstrong and Joe Getty, we do a uh, radio show all up and down the West Coast, big cities. But we, We've had a lot of guests on our radio show over the years. We thought, geez, we could talk to you for an hour. So we thought we'd start doing that with some of our guests. Mm-hmm. And uh, what a pleasure it is to have another conversation with Laura Logan, a uh, legendary foreign correspondent, chief foreign affairs correspondent for CBS News, longtime correspondent for CBS's 60 Minutes, and uh, and and not only a great reporter, but a, a thinker and observer of human beings around the globe, Laura Logan. Here's a couple of things that have happened just in the last couple of days in Afghanistan. Suicide attacks, a midwife training center, a refugee assistance yep. office, a cricket match, a convoy of Sikh and Hindu leaders, a customs building, an elementary school, a ceasefire celebration, and a crowded prayer service at a Shiite mosque in addition to an attack on a military base that killed three foreign soldiers and injured an American. All those just in the last couple of days. That's not what we were hoping for when we went into Afghanistan 17 years ago. Yeah, all true. So where are we? Well, we're at the point of surrender, basically. If you, um, that's what, you know, the Afghan um, people that I know and have known for a very long time, Afghan lawyers, Afghan Americans, Afghans on the ground there, they, right now, the U.S., is engaged in peace talks with the Taliban. We have given up on preconditions from the very beginning, from 9-11. The preconditions were that the Taliban had to embrace the Afghan constitution, they had to denounce violence, and they had to um, renounce any um, affiliation or affinity to al-Qaeda or their ideology. So we've given up on all of that. We've thrown that out the window. We also said that they had to talk to the Afghan government because the only way they could sell peace to their people was for this to be a legitimate Afghan process. We've abandoned that. And uh, and we've now sat down three times with the Taliban emissaries at their office in Qatar. And, um, and we are basically negotiating the terms of what many Afghans see as a surrender. Well, and correct me and if I'm wrong, it, it's probably going to smell a little bit like the uh, peace agreement in Vietnam, in which we shout, peace with honor, peace with honor, and run for the door, and then what ensues is anything but peace or honor. Well, yes. I mean, in some, in some respects, you know, those Vietnam analogies, um, they're very popular and they, and they resonate, right? Um, the reason that I don't really like them too much, um, just based on what I have seen and learned on the ground in Afghanistan, what, what, what will happen here is unlikely that the U.S. is to do an absolute and complete withdrawal. I mean, nobody can say, right? All of us are guessing because we're trying to predict what's going to happen in the future. But if you look at the signs, the signs are that the U.S. is probably going to maintain a presence um, in Afghanistan at Bagram Air Base and in the south. So near the capital, Kabul, that would be Bagram, and in the south would be Kandahar. Why? Because Pakistan has nuclear weapons. It's just across the border, and it has the highest concentration of terrorist groups on any patch of ground in the world. So the U.S. is is, um, is very aware of the consequences of pulling out completely, not just because of the experience of Vietnam, but Vietnam didn't follow the U.S. home, right? I mean, the last time the U.S. pulled out of Afghanistan and disengaged after defeating, helping the Afghans defeat the Soviets, it did follow the U.S. home. It, it followed the U.S. all the way to 9-11 and beyond. So um, there is a very real example right now in the present, not just a historical example of that cost. On top of the fact that that war is not over, in fact, it's spread to many different battlefields across the world, whether it's Yemen or Syria 
you know, or Iraq or other places, and you will say, oh, well, those are different wars. Well, they're not really different in terms of the ideology and what the groups are fighting for and the, um, and the potential consequences for the U.S. So in Afghanistan, what most people expect is that the U.S. will not withdraw completely. They'll maintain some kind of presence. And on top of that, if you look at the mineral resources of Afghanistan, the U.S. Um, geology report that came out recently estimated that worth at around a trillion dollars. And what the U.S. saw in Iraq was the moment that we walked out of um, Iraq before the U.S. even withdrew from Iraq. Who was there negotiating for the oil? The Chinese. And so they, they beat the U.S. to it. So you sacrifice all that blood and treasure in Iraq. And you let other countries, Iran, China, everybody else, reap the benefits. Um, and so is the U.S. willing to do that again in Afghanistan? The Russians, the Iranians, the Chinese, they're already engaged. Afghanistan is sitting on massive mineral resources. And Trump has recently, President Trump, has been uh, inquiring and asking questions about Afghanistan's mineral resources. So that is definitely on his radar. So you have a president who hates nation building and state building, who doesn't believe in it. Who doesn't? Um, who has not made his uh, displeasure with the situation in Afghanistan unknown? You know, he's on the record through the campaign and since he took office, is saying we need results. And he's also expressed interest in the mineral resources. So, uh, how do those those things play into where we are now in Afghanistan and where things are going? Wow, that is all very interesting. You know, it it makes me think of our involvement in all these different countries and. Uh... And I'm not sure we ever end up with any different results. I mean, we got as engaged as you can get in Iraq. We stayed out of Egypt. We got kind of engaged in Libya. I mean, and and now with Afghanistan, it just uh, does it make any difference. So, okay, I'm going to be really cynical here. Did we stay out of Egypt? (laughs) You know, did we stay out of any of these? What you're talking about is the levels of engagement and the type of engagement, right? Right. clandestine and covert diplomatic was it very so you're saying we got very engaged in iraq yes we got very engaged in iraq for all you know um you could argue many people would argue that we got engaged for the wrong reasons right i mean i remember i was one of those journalists scratching my head when they were talking about you know saddam hussein because the only al-qaeda presence in iraq at that time was up in the north in the kurdish region and it was called ansar al-sunnah and, of course, you know, after the fall of Saddam, you had um, al-Qaeda strengthen itself uh, enormously. And then the birth of its um, ultra-violent frontline combat army, um, you know, come to the fore in the form of ISIS. But, um, but the, the, the reality is, is it your form of engagement that, um, that dictates your lack of success? Or is it the fact that um, the U.S. hasn't really demonstrated a willingness to win decisively in any of these conflicts. You know, in Syria, there were some options in the beginning. You could argue that none of them were great. But a few years in, once you'd lost hundreds of thousands of Syrians had been murdered and tortured um, and wounded and suffered, and Russia had consolidated its hold, Iran had consolidated its hold, and Assad, with their assistance and the failure of the Obama administration to keep its red line, had, uh, had managed to make sure that you have no good options left, right? So engagement or disengagement are not your only two options. We, in political terms, that's what we sell to the American people. We get engaged or we don't get engaged, right? That's what works. 
Libya, perfect example. Oh, no, we're not going to get engaged in Libya. We're going to use NATO. We're going to bomb from the skies. We got rid of Gaddafi. And that was the signature foreign policy success of the last administration. Well, where is Libya today? It's a failed state. It's a failed state that's acting as a staging ground and a base and, um, and basically a munitions and weapons factory for every terrorist group in the world, including al-Qaeda and ISIS. So, but nobody wants to talk about that, right? Well, it's funny. I, I, politically. I actually do, as long as our tour of horror has brought us to Libya. I just read Tom Friedman in the New York Times said the other day that toppling Gaddafi without building a new order may go, go down as the single dumbest action the NATO alliance ever took. Uh, do you agree? But, yes. I, I mean, well, you know, um, I would say <laughs> there's a pantheon of dumb decisions that NATO has made. But I don't like putting things on NATO like that, you know. We love to do that as, uh, as journalists and commentators and politicians. NATO is made up of countries, and those countries are made up of leaders. And those leaders made those decisions. And we as journalists allowed them to get away with it, right? I mean, and we as people and voters allowed them to get away with it. These things are not anonymous. And we love to sit in retrospect and look back on administrations and say, oh, look how they failed. But when they're actually in the process of making those decisions and carrying out those policies, we don't like to hold them accountable because then we have to be accountable, too. Right. Sure. And we have to deal with the consequences. The only exception to that that I've observed, you know, very in a very neutral capacity. I don't say this as a pro or for in a very neutral capacity. The only president that I've seen is the sitting president who's getting absolutely pummeled for every decision he makes is the one who's currently in the White House. And I don't even want to say his name because, God, you know, then you unleash a firestorm of right. people coming after you. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, but I'm not I don't care. You know, for me as a journalist, my job is and as someone who's been in Afghanistan and been on the ground in these places from the very beginning of these conflicts. You know, that's what I care about, looking at those things. I I'm not like I, I'm not a political animal. In fact, it's probably be the death of me because I'm a very not political animal. And I and the politics is a is a, just a suicidal game, right? I mean, it's it's death by politics. You get caught up in all of that. If you just if you step away from things and look at them in terms of the principles and in terms of the realities, and you take the hysteria out of it, the political hysteria out of it, that's what I try to do when I try to understand it. And we try to lump all these conflicts together when it suits us, and then we try to separate them when it suits us. We say, oh, you know, Al-Qaeda is not an existential threat to the U.S., we don't care what they're doing in Timbuktu and Mali. That's not going to affect us ever. Well, except maybe it would have. Maybe it would look different if you looked at what's the reality, the way Al Qaeda looks at it. And what Al Qaeda will admit to you is that this is all part of their army. That oh, these are all different battalions and units. The thing is, our battalions and units—they are all part of you know the same army, and they wear the same uniforms, and they they you know they take the same they make the same. Um, contract with the u.s government there's they just they've redefined what it is to have an army they've redefined what it is to fight a conventional war never mind a terrorist war they've taken all those pieces and they've put them together and they use them in different ways and and we for some inexplicable reason seem that it's our duty to help them do that because we help their propaganda by separating them we help their propaganda by saying it's all our fault because we screwed up everywhere, right? And now it's all our fault. We, we seem hell-bent on helping them win, which is just a mystery to me. I'm sorry, who's saying it's all our fault? 
Well, you know, if you if you read um, if you read on the media and you listen to what politicians say, the oh, right. from is that we created ISIS because we invaded Iraq. Really? Is that how it worked? We made it easy for ISIS to take root. But those are all. If you Ryan Crocker, the former U.S. ambassador to Iraq, said it best when he said, "These are all the same guys that I was." I was dealing with when I was ambassador, and they were al-Qaeda in Iraq. They're exactly the same people. We didn't create them. Hmm. You know what I mean? We didn't give right. birth to them. Right. They're fighting for the same thing that they were fighting for when they had a different name. So they rebranded. Why? Because conventional armies hold territory. Clandestine intelligence organizations, they spread, they work on ideology and intelligence. That's what they specialize in. Al-Qaeda, after 9-11, went underground. Yeah, you know, that's why they, they, they had a network of organizations all across the world. Ansar al-Sharia Libya. Ansar al-Sharia Tunisia. Why did these organizations exist? Who funded them? Who built them? What did, who was the allegiance? Who were they tied to? And um, by the way, the Obama administration, after saying that the attack in Benghazi was carried out by Ansar al-Sharia Libya, which was a nondescript, you know, unimportant local organization, well, the Obama Treasury Department then sanctioned them as an al-Qaeda organization, which, you know, any um, journalist with half a brain would have known or knew at the time that this was al-Qaeda Libya. But what al-Qaeda knew was if you put your al-Qaeda name on every organization that is part of you, you're going to face sanctions. It's going to be impossible to operate. You're going to have the resources of the U.S. and all of its allies mobilized against you, right? I mean, smart, clandestine, insurgent terrorist organizations they don't put a big target on their heads. Wow, so merely not calling yourself Al-Qaeda and like uh, closing down for a day and reopening his terrorism hut is good enough to, 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 to a good enough distraction? That's astounding. Of course. In fact, you know, many organizations have done it. Look, if you go back to the African National Congress, the ANC in South Africa, when they were banned by the South African government, what did they do? They created the UDF, the United Democratic Front. And so the UDF could then, they could campaign in public. They could hold rallies. They could have uh, political offices. Who were they? They were basically the ANC. I mean, that's, that's what terrorist and insurgent organizations do. It's the only smart way to survive. And also, don't forget to proliferate, because that allows you to function and proliferate everywhere. What al-Qaeda did with 9-11 was they put their stamp as the ideological leaders of the global Islamic Jihad. Nobody has been able to challenge them, right? Nobody can knock them off their pedestal. And the moment that 9-11 happened, they knew that the U.S., with all its power and might, would be coming after them. And that's exactly what the U.S. did with its allies. So if you're going to live to fight another day, if you're Osama bin Laden and you compare yourself to Muhammad when he fled from, was forced out of Mecca, to, and forced out of Mecca and Medina and went into the Hijra, he spent 30 years fighting to get back, right? That's nothing. That's absolutely nothing to these people because they think in generational terms, in messianic terms. They go back to the Quran. They're talking, you know, they're talking hundreds of years. So what does it matter if you go underground for 10? People always say in the U.S., oh, well, look, we've had no, ter- no major attack in the U.S. That shows our policies are working. Does it? Does it show your policies are working? Or does it show that some of your policies have had some effect, but actually it also might demonstrate that your enemy has shifted its tactics. You know, I was just going to ask whether, in your view, uh, violent fundamentalist Islam under whatever banner is on the rise, on the decline, or 
But you seem to be implying that the game is so long that, you know, I'm not sure it's a worthwhile question. So I'm not. So, see, I'm not implying anything. I'm saying very clearly, if you listen to what Al-Qaeda tells you and what the ideology states, it is a long game. If you mm-hmm. look at what they're doing, recruiting children, what is the cubs of the caliphate under ISIS? Why did Hitler build the Hitler Youth? Because he was planning on, you know, the next two years? No, because he was planning on the next generation, right? I mean, that's, that's not uh, an implication. They say that. Their actions demonstrate that. They've proved that. They've got the cups of the caliphate. When they started, I mean, these youth, the youth that they were recruiting, you talked about us being in Afghanistan for more than 17 years, right? Well, think about it. That 10-year-old is how old now? Yeah, that's incredible. When you start doing the math on those things, you got near 30-year-olds that were there from the beginning. I mean, that's just... <laughs> sure. Right. Um, that's the thing is, I'm not a prophet, right? I can't tell you what they plan and what they think or what anyone is going to do, you know? I mean, that's what's my worst thing ever as a journalist is being asked on the morning news, you know? So what's going to happen? It's like, okay, wait, wait, let me, let me see. I'm not an expert. What I am is a student of these people. And what they say they want to do, because what they have demonstrated is is that they they carry they mean what they say and they follow their word. They've shown that over and over and over again. I can give you a hundred different examples. So I try to understand when are they being genuine, when are they being deceptive, when are they being strategic, when are they being tactical, and I try to build a base of knowledge on that. And you do the same thing with the U.S. Of course. You know, it's always um, it's different depending on who's in power in the U.S. And and we like to hit the reset button. You know, a new administration comes in and they think, oh, they're going to change everything. Pakistan's the perfect example. Every new U.S. general, every new U.S. ambassador, every new U.S. administration goes into Pakistan and thinks they're going to reinvent the Pakistani story. And none of them ever succeed. <laughs> well, that that makes the me that, are playing the same game. So I'm trying to take some overarching philosophy out of what you're saying. So is 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 Western uh, Western civilization just not? Are we not taking this threat seriously enough, or maybe we're just not built for long games? We're built for short games. Well, we do. I mean, it is. You know, it's it's well acknowledged and understood that in, in Western civilization, and particularly in the U.S., we are instant gratification people, right? I mean, look at all the technology that's being created. All of it is built around instant gratification. And and we think in terms of election cycles. Right. We don't, like, I remember sitting with Jack Ma, you know, Jack Ma, the Chinese billionaire, entrepreneur, genius, change the world, bring the internet to China. Right. Um, superstar. So, you know, who created Alibaba and, you know, brought uh, like UPS. There was no delivery service like that in China. He brought all of these things to China, right? And he's continuing to change China and change the world as a result. So Jack Ma and I sat in this tea shop in China. They had 2,000-year-old tea on the menu. Got to be a little dusty, huh? I didn't even know tea could survive for 2,000 years. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, no kidding, but I see where you're going there. The, yeah, the rest of the world thinks in a lot longer terms than we do. Our, our entire focus in the United States is an election coming up in you know in a, in a month or so, and then we'll focus on the next six months. Yep. We don't think the about 2,000-year-old tea. We think in terms of election cycles, and with technology, we think in terms of right now. I mean, our kids don't even wait 
for the next episode to come next week. They they binge watch, right? Yeah, we had a, a boss who once said that, that there were a civilization that paces back and forth impatiently in front of a microwave, which I thought was a pretty good way to put it. Yes. yes. And, you know, Jack Ma said to me in that conversation in the tea shop, he said, you know, we, we look at the world in terms of thousands of years, in terms of centuries and civilizations. Our philosophy goes back a very long way. It's fascinating to us to look at you and, and see uh, how you think. I mean, he, and he, he defined the relationship, how the U.S. relationship with China had changed in his lifetime by looking at his grandfather's relationship and then his father's and then his. You know, here he is doing business with the U.S. He's going to the U.S. and bringing, you know, seeing the Internet and bringing that to China. What was his father? What was his grandfather? You know, I mean, one of them was, a, was at war, a POW, and was at war. Right. And from one generation to the next, that relationship and that image of the U.S. changed. So it's a, it, it's not a uniquely U.S. thing to be instant gratification. There's a lot of the, of the new world is like that. But if you look at the philosophy of al Qaeda and you read the ideology, bin Laden and uh, Abdullah Azam, the Palestinian philosopher that he wrote the ideology with, they they talked in, in messianic terms. They talked in generations and years. I'll give, you a, I'll give you one of the most visceral examples that I ever experienced. I was in northern Iraq when, after the fall of Mosul, when ISIS were in control of the city. And it was such a terrifying place uh, to be because James Foley had been beheaded in an orange jumpsuit and Stephen Sotloff and all the others that followed, right? And... Um, and ISIS were used, they used propaganda so effectively to strike terror in all of our hearts. And so we're in the small little villages of, of northern Iraq that surround Mosul. You could see Mosul, which was just a few miles away, and you could see the front lines of ISIS. And I was with Kurdish forces who were showing us where, you know, ISIS fighters would come and penetrate the lines at night and where they, how they were fighting, like in the trenches right in front of their positions and all of that. And, and I went to Christian villages. And I wanted to be able to say in my story how old these villages were. When, when did the first Christians walk on this ground? So, you know, you ask people in the village, everybody gives you a different answer. You look it up online, everyone's got a different answer. So I became so frustrated trying to find the truth. And so I said, okay, said to the villagers, take me to the oldest building in this village. So this is northern Iraq, which was ancient Mesopotamia. What do you think the oldest building was in the village? I can't can't even imagine. I, I know it's mentioned multiple times in the Old Testament, so yeah, 3,000 so, years? So, I don't... so you would think, so was it a church? Was it a church? You would think maybe a mosque. Then you think, no, well, because, you know, you go to Israel, there's a long argument over who was there first, right? Mm-hmm. You go to the Palestinian territories, who was there first? Who does it all belong to? Okay, so you go there. It's not the mosque. It's not the church. It's the synagogue, the oldest building. And who takes me there? The Muslims take me there, hmm. right? It's not Jewish people taking me there. It's not Christian people taking me there. This is the local Muslims who've lived there all their lives and actually never lived anywhere else. So then you start to look, well, wait a minute. Okay, so then what is the oldest church? And you go to the oldest church. And what is the oldest mosque? Well, the first mosque was built. The, the first Muslims never set foot on that territory of northern Iraq 
until more than 600 years after the first after the Assyrians converted to Christianity, as they became the first nation to convert to Christianity as a nation. So for 600 years, there weren't any Muslims in Iraq, in northern Iraq, on that piece of ground. So think about how they are looking at the history. If it takes 600 years, that's, you know, that doesn't mean anything to them. They're willing to fight for 600 years. You know, I find myself wondering whether we're just talking about the life cycle of, of peoples and cultures and empires, the the move from the, the young, hungry, and desperate, young, historically speaking, to the successful and established, to the affluent and self-indulgent, and then it goes away, and there could be nothing more natural. You can postpone it with an incredibly mighty military, I suppose, but um, I just, I can't see us uh, having... Having sacrificed notions, or at least seen a transition of notions from history to immediacy, from duty to, to pleasure, etc., I don't see us as a people thinking about our great-great-great-grandchildren in a significant way. And I don't know why we don't. Because, you know, as a mother, I look at my children, and I get sometimes really, I get really, you know, anxious and worried. And I used to... You know, I spend so much time on the battlefields and, and, and talking to soldiers and especially, you know, officers or commanders or like group leaders or whatever. They would always talk about, I'm, I'm here so my children don't have to be here. And I used to think that that was the hokiest, you know, most um, made up kind of talking point you could get. Right. I was like off a crying in a bucket. Seriously, another, another guy's telling me that. And now I'm a mom and I'm looking at my kids and I'm looking at where we are in these wars and I'm thinking, holy Right? right? Guacamole. Like, I mean, are my children really going to have to fight this? Is, is that really where we are? Right, right. You know, and, and to uh, the question of the future, um, and we've touched on Libya a little bit and, um, and, and the, the Muslim world and transitions and that sort of thing. I think the refugee crisis in Europe is the beginning of what could, could be one of the great uh, historical twists that'll happen this millennium. I mean, I, I, I don't understand how Europe remains Europe for more than, I don't know, another half century or so, culturally speaking. Well, you know, that is a very interesting question. And when you look at the indicators, look at Switzerland. Switzerland banned minarets, the minarets of mosques from their landscape, right? Because that doesn't fit the image, the traditional image of what it means to be Swiss, what, what defines Switzerland. And many years ago when I was living in London, I remember that uh, curry replaced fish and chips as the national dish in England. And there was an outcry. I mean, you know, it really got, had a, a real um, reaction amongst the British people because curry became the national dish because more British people were choosing to eat curry on a daily basis than fish and chips, right? I mean, that became the most popular meal to have. And it, But what it did was demonstrate to British people how, over time, their culture was changing. The difference is that when Indian people were uh, emigrating to the UK, um, they were, you know, typically there's a, a high degree of assimilation. People hold on to their cultures and their traditions and, and that kind of thing, but there was never any question about becoming British. And redefining what it means to be British was is part of that. But at the end of the day, it was still not seen as an assault on British culture. Fast forward to Belgium, 
and the last few elections in Brussels, the capital, there have been several districts of Belgium, including the district where the Paris um, terrorist attackers came from, where there have only been Islamic candidates in local elections. And these candidates um, have all campaigned on a basis of replacing Belgian law with Sharia law, but also separating public and private spaces, right? So that in public, men and women could not be in the same spaces. Separating the education system so boys and girls don't go to school together. Well, now you're talking about a very dramatic change to traditional Belgian Flemish culture. And even, you know, going to Germany today, all over Germany, even when you land in the airport, there are prayer rooms, you know, for, uh, and, the, and the, the picture, the little sign depicts, and it's an Islamic um, prayer sign, the ones that I saw. Um, and you wouldn't have seen that in Germany, I don't know, 20 years ago. I'm not exactly sure. So those, those do represent a significant cultural shift. And um, I mean, that's why a number of European countries have started to restrict, put restrictions on immigration because they're looking at these questions. The U.S. doesn't face those questions yet. Right. You know, and you've led us beautifully into a conversation we've had many times on the radio show. And and that is, how do you respond? Well, you you listed a number of changes, some of which are, are merely interesting, some of which are incredibly troubling. How do you respond to people who would accuse a Belgian of racism or xenophobia for resisting that sort of change? Uh, how do you how do you defend people's right to defend their country and their culture? Well, in the modern media narrative, you don't. If you do, you're a racist. And um, it's hate speech. And you're xenophobic. And um, you're, you know, I mean, that's the reality. Just look at today. There's one uh, acceptable narrative for everything. And if you go outside of that, you'll get attacked and you're denigrated. And I'm not saying that that's my narrative. It really doesn't matter. If I dare to even say to you what I just said to you now, I'm going to be attacked, right? And I'm going to be accused of having that. Absolutely. I was asked asked recently, you know, to what do you attribute this rise in populism and nationalism? And I said, I'm not really sure. I said, in modern political terms, I guess you could call it a rise. I said, but when you look at the world, to me, it's one of the oldest, as long as human beings have been on the earth, they have gravitated towards their own kind. Now, that doesn't mean that you get to discriminate or, you know, or, or, um, or torture or murder or, or, you know, do anything bad to other people just because they're different. Vikings typically stuck to other Vikings, right? I mean, you look at the tribes in Africa. Typically, the tribes in Africa, they didn't, you don't have Sutus and Zulus historically crossing the lines unless they were strategic marriages. What, how did Europe, what was Europe really? but a collection of tribes. And, um, you know, Catholics, they, they liked to marry other Catholics. So I'm not defending that as a, as a principle. All I'm doing is pointing out that it's a very human quality. And what, you're, what you see when people feel that they're disappearing, that their culture is disappearing, or that they're becoming a minority in their own land, they express that in different ways. And what the point we've reached today is where you're not allowed to have a conversation about that or a legitimate conversation or an honest conversation because you're instantly denigrated for doing so. Like some of those people may choose, may, may, may make very destructive, very bad choices that 
you or I might not agree with at all. But what, what you're asking is, how do you have that conversation? To me, the absolute heart and essence of freedom and liberty is having that conversation and having the ability to say to someone, I agree with you. I don't agree with you. Oh, I see. I hadn't thought about it that way. Well, from your point of view, I understand, but I still don't agree with you. Right? right. Or maybe I do. Or maybe I, maybe I agree a little bit more than I did before, but at the end of the day, you know, I'm still going to take a different position or whatever it happens to be. You know, it's not up to us to decide the outcome of the conversation in advance. As, so since we're on this subject, um, a lot of these predominantly, almost entirely Muslim countries, getting back to Afghanistan, that laundry list of violence that I mentioned, that it's happened just in the last three or four days. How much of that has to do with Islam? Like, I, I, it's, it's interesting if my neighborhood becomes less Christian and more Muslim or more Jewish or whatever. But as long as nobody's hurting me, it doesn't really make any difference to me. But how much of the violence and the killing and the zero-sum game is tied into Islam as you see it traveling around these countries? Well, that's a complex question. And, a, a and one that one ruins careers. So you just wade right in. No. I mean, I don't, you know, as you might have noticed, I don't really worry. I mean, I I should worry about ruining my career, but I I just um I just am too direct and too um straightforward and too honest to, you know, to be political. It's just not in my DNA. I mean, what I what I would say, what I've seen on the ground in many different um Islamic countries is is that it's tied the religion is part of culture in many places. And so, you know, you have Afghanistan is a very different Islamic country to Malaysia, right? I mean, um, there are some things that are similar and there are a lot of things that are, are very different. If you people used to ask me the same question about Africa, you know, why are Africans so violent? Are they really more violent um, than people here or do they they just live at the edge of survival? And when you live in that place, um, your choices are much more stark mm. and you maybe resort more easily to violence. I hate it when people say to me, oh, they don't, they don't value life the way we do. I, and I also hate it when people say everyone's the same all over the world, we all want the same things. Because I, I don't think either of those, I have not experienced either of those things to hold true. Um, I, I find people who value life the same way as me and every place on earth and the same way as Americans. I don't mean me as a guide, I just mean the way, the way we do in the U.S. And I found people who don't. And I can I can show you people who definitely do not want the same things as you and I, right? Because I don't want my child, I don't dream of my child growing up to be a suicide bomber and think that that's going to bring glory to my family. And that is a very real thing. There are people who feel that way. Wow. What I will say, though, is that people have experienced always, all over the earth, that religion and God are very powerful recruiting tools. And they're very powerful tools. So the first thing that you should know, though, is that Islamic terrorists and jihadists and converts and that who I have met over the years, many of them, they've all corrected me when I've said Islam is a religion. They all tell me that Islam is a civilization. It's not a religion. And that part of our problem is that we look at it as a religion. And so that's a very interesting shift in your, in your perspective when you approach these things. You know, and what a civilization does is it prescribes rules for every part of your life. So it's, it's an instrument of enormous control. And I guess the way I best answer the question to people 
is, I say, show me an Islamic country where you believe your children will have a better way of life than the one they do here. Right, right. It's it's a point well made. I'm so annoyed by the the naivete and and the, well, uh, we'll stick with the naivete for the moment. But of of a lot of people in uh, the American political scene who think that Islam is the same as Presbyterianism, um, and and not only that, but they have what I've characterized as xenophilia. They have this desperate need to seem enlightened by embracing that which is foreign. And while I'm certainly no xenophobe, I think you'd have to be so misguided by your ideology to be half blind to not recognize that there are places, there are cultures, there are beliefs that are toxic, that yield poorer results in terms of humanity, and and to embrace them automatically because they're not white American Christian. Well, you know, I would say I'm a very, I'm a very open and tolerant person. You know, I grew up, I didn't eat meat, I was against the fur trade. Well, you know, I didn't eat meat until there was nothing else to eat, right? Until I was in a village where that's all there was to eat, and I was really hungry. <laughs> and then I learned, uh, you know, to to eat whatever was available. I didn't believe in the fur in wearing furs. I protested that when I was a kid until I was in Siberia with the Chukchi, and I had been cold for six weeks. And an old Chukchi man put a fur coat on me, and it was the first time the wind stopped, and I had I could feel my limbs, right? Or I was standing in a an abandoned fox farm, and a little Chukchi lady was coming to feed the dying foxes every day, put her little fox hat on my head. And and then I thought, and then I was asked, you know, by Siberians, by the Chukchi there, where are all these people that shut down the fur industry? Like this little lady, this little Chukchi, she's coming there every day. She's feeding these animals, which are in cages, dying. Okay, and where, where are all the people who are congratulating themselves in New York and, you know, Paris and London and L.A. because they've shut down the fur trade on their great victory. So what, what I have been lucky enough to do and what I've sought out is to try, why do you have to be there in person? Why do I go to all these horrible places? Why do I stay? I stayed five years in Baghdad, right? I didn't go home. And when I left there, I would go to Afghanistan or to Darfur. Why is it so important to have reporters who spend time in these places and don't just fly in and out? Because with time, when you live and walk in the shoes of those people, you learn things and understand things. I mean, I love living in Iraq. It's not what I would want for my children. But there are so many things I love about the people and the place and the, and the history and the things that I learned. And, and what I learned is not to abandon every principle I ever had. You know, what I learned was which principles really mattered. And um, how what not being judgmental really means, right? What listening to someone really means. I had to do that in South Africa, where I couldn't stand anything to do with the extreme white right. And I grew up in a very liberal home, and I and I fought for the end of apartheid, and I believed in it. But I still had to go into those areas as a journalist and say, okay, what's your perspective? What's your opinion? And put that out because every if you say that you believe in 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 being tolerant and being open and in trying to understand so you can find common ground or you can find compromise or you can find a way to live together. That's what I, I grew up believing you had to do. So I say that because I want, you know, it's really important for me to, for that people understand is if, if people choose to live that way, you know, in wherever it happens to be, 
that's fine for like for me i don't have any issues with that but i'm very clear on what life i want for my daughter and what life i want as a woman and i don't want to be fighting for the right to have a driver's license to drive a car and be celebrating that as a victory okay that's not a victory i mean it is a victory of course but for me personally with the freedoms that i have known and enjoyed in my life and what i want for my children and my grandchildren that's not a victory right oh. and so what I, I what i just don't understand is how we got to this point where you know you know how we get there we get there by saying oh this isn't a war about religion well what nonsense is that then you're ignoring 99% of what these people themselves are saying you're right in one sense though it's actually a war about power where the people waging this war who want absolute power who want to annihilate everybody who's not like them have very successfully and artfully used religion to give their struggle and their fight the authority the moral authority of god and that takes men into battle it recruits people it gets people to give up their lives as doctors it gives us their comfortable lives in comfortable countries that's what it does that's how powerful it is so when we stand up and say oh this isn't a word about religion it's got nothing to do with it and you know anyone who criticizes or brings you know religion into it is some kind of racist xenophobic you know nasty person well all you're doing is saying them is you might as well you're bending over saying how else can i help you win hmm. what else would you like me to do in the time we have left if you don't mind let's talk a little bit about a little more about your job and how you do it and how you see it and if you don't mind starting with uh, one of my favorite books that I've had the great pleasure of being able to discuss with my kids who are now mostly grown up, uh, The Things They Carried by Tim O'Brien. Uh, I assume you're, are you familiar with that at all? It's uh, it's a story, you know, it's a collection of stories about I'm Vietnam. Not, so tell me. Well, the theme of the book is he served in Vietnam and writes these incredibly harrowing, beautiful, moving stories about Vietnam. But one of the themes of the book is that he's not writing factually he, it is fictionalized because there's no way to convey the fact without fictionalizing it. You can't, in your armchair, understand what it was like unless I fictionalize it, which is, you know, it's a, an interesting. interesting notion. And I wonder if you ever, as a war correspondent, witness things that are practically indescribable, and if you ever feel like the way I'm about to describe them can't convey the reality. Well, you know, my mother always used to say that life is stranger than fiction, <laughs> right? And I think it's true. I'll tell you a funny story to illustrate this point. A friend of mine was one of the very senior commanders in southern Afghanistan under the surge uh, led by McChrystal. And he sent me an email the one day from the battlefield, which I actually had to, like, stop in my tracks. I was in Washington, D.C., and when I read this, I thought, oh, my word. He said he was working with the local police in Kandahar, and they got called to a checkpoint where they believed there was a, a vehicle-borne IED, so a suicide car bomb. And the Afghan police and them, they had surrounded it, and the Afghans wanted to deal with it because they wanted to demonstrate to the Americans that they could handle this situation. So they got a line of Afghan policemen to stand up next to each other, and they all opened fire with their AK-47s on the suspected car bomb. So <laughs> needless to say, that's not how an American uh, unit would approach it. But um, 
they all managed to miss the vehicle. No bullets hit it. And one bullet hit the ground, ricocheted. There was a tree above the car bomb. It hit the Taliban trigger man who was in the tree, who then <laughs> fell to the ground. And when he hit the ground, he activated the detonator that was in his hand, and the car bomb exploded. And all the Afghans fled the checkpoint because they told the Americans that exploding mullahs were falling out of the sky. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Does that illustrate your point? (laughs) (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Uh, That that is some story. On the XXX, you know, evening news, we bring you the tale of exploding bullets. Yeah, no, you just can't do that, you know? I mean, but I would say, look, I'm a person who, my feet are very firmly planted on the ground. I'm not a dreamer. I'm not the great, you know, I'm not the Elon Musk that's looking into the future and changing the world. I'm, I'm a person that gives everything to the moment and to the people around me and to the things that I'm doing. I know what's real and what's not. And that's my greatest guide as a journalist. I don't know everything. And, of course, I make mistakes and sometimes famously so. But, um, but what I do know is when you build up knowledge and experience over time, your, you strengthen your bullshit meter, right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that's why beat reporting is so, so, so important. And I just, I want to tell you one other thing about Vietnam, because I had a very, very close friend of mine was a man called Tom O'Connell. And in the intelligence world, that name means more than most in the history of U.S. military intelligence. And this is a person who's, you know, whose career went back many, many years. In fact, he's regarded as the father of the modern military intelligence infrastructure that we still use today. And Tom is now buried in Arlington Cemetery. But one of at a, the last lunch that he and I had together at the Army and Navy Club, he told me a story about going to Vietnam as a young soldier. He was in college, and he left, and he went to go fight. And he said two things that shocked me. I asked him, why do the Green Berets Okay, American Green Beret Special Forces, if you go to their headquarters in Fort Bragg, North Carolina, in front of their uh, headquarters is a huge statue of Bronze Bruce. And Bronze Bruce is an SF soldier in Vietnam with his hand out holding the hand of a young Montagnard child. And Montagnards were a local tribe, if you like, in Vietnam that were, and Cambodia that were working with the Americans and, in fact, became a very potent local force in the Vietnam War. And I said, I don't understand why, why would the Green Berets take a symbol like that to represent all of them? Because to us, that's a symbol of abject failure. No greater failure in U.S. military history, right, is the Vietnam War. I, guess, I don't get it. And he said, you know, the war on the ground had changed so significantly by the time they made, the U.S. made the political decision to pull out and withdraw. He said, we had just turned the tide between the, the relationship with the Montagnards. It took that length of time to build um, up a formidable fighting force that was local and could work on both sides of the border. And it had just really started to pay dividends. Plus, they had a program of turning prisoners inside the prisons. And that program had had enough time now to really bear fruit. He said, but the but politics is rarely in line with the military reality on the ground, right? 
And so he said just the moment that the U.S. political reality was, you know, meant that we were pulling out was when we, fighting on the ground, felt that we had turned, we were turning the tide of the war. Now, that may or may not be true. It's one man's perspective. And he was he was a soldier on the ground at the time and, you know, and fathered the systems that you see in place today. So a formidable individual. The second thing he said was when I came home to the U.S. after being gone for all those years, I didn't recognize the country I came home to. Suddenly, people in the corridors at my college were smoking marijuana. There was drugs and sex everywhere. And he said, I didn't even know this place. You know, and and we might laugh and say, oh, well, you know, those are all good positive changes, right? Drugs and sex and, you know, free love and Woodstock and hippies and all the protests against Vietnam. But what it meant to me was, how can I know so little about this period that's been written about so much? And how many perspectives have we really explored? Or do we just read the same perspective over and over again in many different forms? Wow. Wow. Yeah, that is so thought-provoking. Boy, I, I have no doubt that your feet are planted firmly on the ground. I don't see how anybody could have uh, had the career you've had, lived the life you've lived, and not be pretty uh, firmly o- 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 in touch with human nature and what human beings are capable of. I, I think the opposite would be the bigger problem. How do you how do you keep your head out of the oven? How do you <laughs> how do you you not know succumb uh, to discouragement? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You never do. You never ever ever do. You know why? Because for every nasty, horrible person I've ever met, I have had that moment, you know, um, where I'm a very, I'm a very warm person, and um, and I, I have great respect for the people and the places where I go. And respect is one of those things that you cannot fake. You might get away with it for a moment here and there, but it doesn't matter whether people speak your language or they dress in rags, or they dress in, you know, a dishdasha, or in Muslim robes, or in, you know, in whatever, in American blue jeans. People know when you're real. They know when you uh, truly respect them. They know when you're being honest. And, and I have never promised more than I can give. Uh, and so for me, I believe, I just believe um, in, the, in the good that people can be when we're at our best. I believe in that, and I've seen it. And I've seen it sometimes, you know, just in, in the person that, you know, that just lost their family or their whole family in a bombing that day, you know? I've seen it in, in like, being in a hospital with kids with 90% burns all over their bodies and seeing the, the nurse that doesn't leave their side that you never hear about. His name you never know about. It doesn't even matter. And she's one of many. I meet those people all the time. And I believe in them. Final question. Uh, what would you like to do next, professionally speaking? Replace Alex Trebek. No, I just say that because Anderson <laughs> Cooper was that job. <laughs> That's <laughs> beautiful. One day. <laughs> I, said, I don't even know if it's worth it anymore. Like, seriously, all this, all this, you know, all the attacks and the way we, we get um, silenced, really. You know what, what I would like? Gosh, but I would really like most of all, it's not so much what I want to do next. I, I wonder how many journalists today truly have a free voice. What are the things we can't talk about? Interesting. What are the things we are not allowed to say? What are the subjects we're not allowed to explore? 
There shouldn't be any. Why are there any? What I would like next, not just for me, but for all of us, for you, for, uh, for every, I would like real journalism not to die. I would like the true meaning of freedom to come back to the streets of the U.S. You know, that's a good that's one. What I would like. We're already pretty militant on the idea of defending the free exchange of ideas, and uh, you have re-energized us, and we thank you for that. But look at where we are. This is the age of information warfare. Okay, so now companies are deciding what's free speech and what's not. They're redefining the First Amendment. Who gets to define the First Amendment? Isn't wasn't the whole def- point of the individual freedom? But as long as they don't impinge on the rights of others. And, and who are the people making these decisions? I mean, I'll give you just a stupid example. We're having a long conversation about Facebook and Russia. Really? <laughs> really? We're not talking about all of the other countries doing the same thing. We're not talking about data mining. Like, why does any app in the background, why are they refreshing in the background? What are they doing? They're, they're mining your data. Who's paying for that? You're paying for it. You are paying for it. Why are you paying for all of these companies and political organizations and so-called civil liberties organizations and all of them? They're all mining your data all the time, and you're paying for it, and nobody's paying you. And yet we have a one-sided conversation about one company and one country. I just think we're dumb. Our primary problem, Laura, is that we're, we're dumb. We're dumb people. No, we're, <laughs> we're not a serious. We're not dumb. People. It's not true. We're overwhelmed. It's not true. I don't believe it. Hey, yeah. we. I. So I. We're asleep at the wheel. There you go. How's that? Yeah, for yeah. We're we're yeah. we're as a society, and uh, we're we're self indulgent, and we're amusing ourselves to death, and that's a different giant topic. But I've never heard a conversation with you or any any piece you did that I didn't think was fantastic, and I appreciate the opportunity we got to well, talk to you for quite a while today. Yeah, it's it's great. I love you guys. Well, I love that you want to talk about these things. But the only thing I would say is don't fall for that thing that we're dumb. You know, I used to get that all the time at work. People say, oh, well, our audience won't understand. Really? You know what? People really, they, they understand more than, uh, than we think. They understand when you say this terrorist organization has battalions all over the world, and if we don't do something about it, we're going to pay for it down the line. That's very simple. Or they say, oh, no, no, don't worry. They're not connected. All these little groups, they're meaningless, and we don't have to worry about them. Oh, okay. Well, then we don't have to worry about them. You know, you know there's, there's a simple way to put anything that we, any argument and anything that we really need to pay attention to. It's, it, what we're not doing is we're not holding ourselves accountable, and we're not holding our leaders accountable for uh, the lack of freedom that we have today. We're not doing anything about that. We've given up our privacy. And we've surrendered it. And and what else have we given up? Those are the questions we need to ask. All right. We're not dumb as much In as we're seduced. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, next time we talk, if uh, you're ever so generous with your time again, we could spend an hour on turkey. I would love to talk turkey with you, no pun intended. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, man. That's, yeah. <laughs> talk about pivotal places. Uh, Laura Logan, it's always great. Thank you so much. Anytime. Thank you. And that's the end of the official thing. And so uh, thanks a million. It's great to talk. And thanks for persevering. We know technically speaking it wasn't, uh, you know, effortless. Thanks a lot. Oh, you have no idea. I'm at, like, the side of the road in a tiny little town. 
It's pitch dark. We had like a six-hour drive ahead of us, and my children are bleeding out their eyeballs. Oh, my gosh. Oh, great, Scott. Yeah, well, hang up right now. (laughs) Yeah, okay. All right, we'll talk soon. Thanks. Thank you. All right, bye-bye. Okay. Keep it it rolling, Michael. I want to continue the conversation from there. Yeah. so, you know, what she was just talking about there, uh, about her, her, the one thing that she could do is bring back press freedom. I'll tell you, during that conversation, I felt in the room the things I can say and can't say. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, there, there was one period in there, something about, uh, you know, Islam being the cause of this, whatever I thought. Is this going to get us in trouble? Is I was this concerned about up- her and us. And she's absolutely right. If we're in a place where we can't have a conversation about what role does Islam play in this, Without being scared, we are freaking doomed. Yes. Yeah. And and not to get off, you know, too completely on the free speech thing and the free exchange of ideas thing, but you must absolutely have the right to be wrong if there's going to be a free exchange of ideas. And you must permit somebody to be wrong without, uh, for instance, smashing them in the head, um, as as uh, a number of people are, are want to do these days. And you have to, have to, have to be able to confront things that make you very uncomfortable. It's like, you know, the First Amendment exists to protect objectionable speech, unpopular speech. The only ideas that need protection are the ones that make people mad. I came across this quote the other day. That make, I'm sorry, that make you feel uncomfortable, that trigger you. Those are precisely the ideas that need to be protected. I came across this quote the other day from John Milton, um, and it uh, from years ago anyway. Error of opinion may be tolerated where reason is free to combat it. Yeah, well said. And more pithy than me. And that's what we need. We need to uh, to be able to have these, co- at least say them out loud and and bounce around. You think this is it? You think this is it? You think Islam is this? You think people think this is ruining society, having these people coming around? We ought to be able to have that conversation and then be wrong about it if reason is there to compete against it. But if you're not allowed to even have the conversation, right. to even start down that road, yeah. we're freaking doomed. Yeah. Uh, I'm pretty sure it was Thomas Sowell who said beautifully and succinctly, and I'm going to slaughter it now, that it, it is Borderline mental illness to deny that there are some cultures on Earth that are better and some worse at yielding happy, healthy human beings. To deny that reality is bizarre. I mean, it's indefensible. And yet there are a lot of people who speak very, very loudly on the modern American and European, for that matter, political scene who want to deny that reality. And that that, by the way, that reality does not. Uh, justify racism or hate or violence or or uh, denying people their constitutional rights. I mean that's a, that's an idiocy in and of itself. But you must accept that is true. Or my God, wh- how do we talk about this stuff? I was sure as hell was going to bring this up during our interview with her. I mean it's a, w- a well known story. But when she says I have my firm my feet firmly on the ground, yeah, you get gang raped by a bunch of crazies in a square in Egypt. Mm-hmm. You would have a pretty solid idea of what you know, humanity is all about. Right, yeah. She's riding no unicorns over no rainbows. Right, yeah, yeah. Well, that was good stuff. That was fun. Yeah. I uh, just... I, I, I wish I... This is me. This is a problem with me. That when I talk to somebody like that, I feel like I've messed up my life somehow. <laughs> or, or, you know, because, God, to have the experiences she's had around the world. She would have been that top tier of percentage of people who really know... 
what humanity is yeah. and has seen it. Yeah. I've read about a lot of it, but yeah. I ain't seen it up close. You know, I almost brought up one place I'd been, but then I thought, no, that's going to sound like I'm trying to sound like, well, wait a minute. No, cause the, but I shouldn't be self-conscious because I'd, uh, never mind. Hell with it. Because, I mean, she's, and great. <laughs> I, I, I say this lovingly, and I, I love Laura's intellect. Um, so I'm in love with her intellect. When she was talking about being with the the various people in uh, Siberia, it sounded just like Jay Peterman from the uh, Seinfeld show. <laughs> <laughs> Elaine, there I was, squatting with the Tajik people. <laughs> um, but yeah, the 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 breadth of her travel and how she stays in one place and 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 mind melds with the humans there, I think, is so. Oh, yeah. The part is so important and so powerful. And I was going to bring this up, but then I started to think, is my goal here to like make her cry? What am I, Barbara Walters here now? Or, <laughs> um, but the, to me, the hardest part would be um, just meeting the regular people and you get to know them a little bit and their, you know, their lives suck and are going to continue to suck by, yeah. you know, just, just that's just the way it is. And you'd <laughs> think for them, for that guy, her and those two kids, the tectonic plates of civilization and these major political movements don't freaking mean anything. Right. They're just trying to keep their kids alive and survive. Right. And, you know, that would be the tough stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, Owen, too. Oh, boy. So, uh, yeah. So that's Laura Logan. Who are we everybody. talking to next time for our long-form podcast? Uh, I believe we've got... Uh, who's the... Mike Rogers, former the, chairman the, of the Senate... Or, uh... The guy that played the Incredible Hulk. Isn't that who we have on it? Lou Ferrigno. Lou Ferrigno. (laughs) So look forward to that for our next long form podcast, The Armstrong and Getty Show.